Okay, good morning. Delighted to be with you all. I would like to start with a question, and it's not a rhetorical one. What do you want? What do you want? Maybe even take a moment here and just jot it down or tap it in your phone. What's the first thing that came to your mind when I said that? And don't spiritualize it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that almost none of you will write down or will have thought of, I want to eat food offered to idols. But that's actually what we're going to talk about today. Uh, that's actually what's in the scripture. So I'm pretty sure that uh, there's not an immediate connection there, but we'll see. We're continuing our study of 1 Corinthians this morning, and we're going to see that the very power of God is directing our desires to the glory of God and the good of others. That's all I'm going to say in one slide. So if you get that, you got it. You're good. You can tune out. No, please don't tune out. That's, that's the main point. Or if you prefer my alternate title, I kind of like it. Watching what we eat. This passage is going to be full of food references, so I hope you're not hungry. If you are, too bad. There's going to be a lot of food references. It is what it is. You know, the alternate title, I only say that partially joking, because Paul is addressing a concern that the Corinthian church has raised with him. It started back in chapter 8, and he says, Now concerning what you wrote to me about, food offered to idols, how are we supposed to behave related to that? Some of the Corinthians appear to be arrogantly asserting in a superior knowledge or superior way, talked about them being puffed up, giving themselves permission to do whatever they wanted and whatever they saw fit to satisfy their desires. This goes all the way back to chapter 3 when they remember we were talking about their divisions and how they were choosing to follow different leaders. It also touches on chapter 5, which we've not gone over yet as a church, but about walking out sexual immorality. They were giving themselves freedom to do this. So I want to like help us a little bit. On the surface, this concern, now concerning, food offered to idols, has almost no relevance to us. No relationship to modern times on the surface. But as we look a little deeper at the desires that drive this concern and Paul's extended treatment of it, he takes chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, which is where we're going to focus today, and just the first verse of chapter 11 to talk about this issue. We're going to see that, in fact, this is immediately relevant to us. And it is empowering to us in our day-to-day -day life, our regular life. On, on, he says in verse 11, on whom the end of the ages has come. That's us. And it's relevant to us to give us much-needed direction to our desires. Direction, which often, let's be honest, they run completely amok. So much of life as we make it is quite simply about what we want, isn't it? Initially, that sounds fair, even reasonable. My goodness, it's embedded in our culture as a country. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In our modern Western world, it turns out, though, when we go after these things, and when the frame of reference for what we pursue, what we desire, what we want, when the frame of reference for that is ourselves, we lose our moorings. We lose our bearings completely. And in fact, that's exactly what happened all the way back at the beginning, wasn't it? When Adam and Eve were set in the garden to enjoy. Eve saw the apple from the forbidden tree. 
and desired the knowledge of good and evil in exactly the way that God had forbidden. And here we are. The irony in pursuing desires based on our own reference, our self-reference to ourselves, is that we become enslaved to them. Eric touched on this so great last week, I wanted to repeat the quote from um, Henry Nguyen. Addiction might be the best word to explain the lostness that so deeply permeates society. Our addictions make us cling to what the world claims as the keys to self-fulfillment, accumulation of wealth, power, attainment of status, admiration, lavish consumption of food and drink. That fits the passage, so it's good. Sexual gratification without distinguishing lust and love, God's intent, our intent. These addictions create expectations that cannot but fail. They cannot but fail. They cannot but fail to satisfy our, de our deepest desires. As long as we live within the world's delusions and our own self-reference, our addictions condemn us to futile quests. The word that the Bible uses to describe this is idolatry. That's a religious word. But now does it stick for you? It's evil desire. It's wanting what we want based on what we think is right. And in fact, this is what happened to many of the Israelites after God had just led them out of slavery in Egypt, way back in Exodus. And that's where we're going to jump in here. They had, they had been freed from physical slavery, but they in fact remained enslaved to evil desires. And so that's where we're going we're to pick up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Read with me. Paul is presenting this in the middle of his argument, in the middle of his response to their concern about food offered to idols, and he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Sobering words. Continuing verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. These are sobering words, church family. Sobering words. So Paul is drawing the Corinthian church their attention to in response to the question, what about this food offered to idols? And we'll get into why they were asking. Why can't we eat this? Why can't we eat this in certain settings? What's, what's the deal? He's drawing them back to this, a tectonic piece of Christian history. When God rescued his own people and had led them out in might and power, the Red Sea was split. It talks about it. Led them through, in essence, baptizing them. Is a, a poetic reference to that, a, a, 
uh, just a, a literary reference to, you went through the sea and you drank and ate they, the manna. You guys remember the story, the manna? And God provided water out of a rock. So there's food and drink is embedded in this passage and in this reference. But then these sobering words, God was not pleased with them, many of them. And then he gives numerous examples. We do not have time to go through the Old Testament expansions of those, but I would recommend for your reading Exodus 32, Deuteronomy 34, um, and Acts 7, when Stephen preaches on this, all of them, you have three very specific references to exactly this passage. If you want to unpack that more, um, it really paints the picture for us. He highlights this as an example of don't be idolaters. Don't, they're, they're, these things were written for our example that we might not desire evil the way they did. And then he gives us specific examples here in the passage. Do not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is a horrific reference. We think play, you know, run out and go on a playground. No. This was, they were unmoored. It speaks about, in essence, giving in. The very next, the next uh, reference, indulging, gives the picture. It was, they were unmoored. They lost their bearings. They became focused on themselves. Moses was gone. He was on the mountain. They didn't know where he was. They were frustrated. And they decided, you know what? We're going to do what we think is right. Oh, there's the first hint. That's a problem. Indulging in sexual morality, putting Christ to the test. Where's the water? It was better in Egypt. They did all these things. So these things are written as a warning for us that we might not desire evil instead of good. And that is, in the simplest terms, that's what the definition of idolatry is, is to desire evil instead of good. It's not more complicated than that. It's determining ourselves or by our culture rather than based on what God says. Replacing God with something else of our choosing, replacing the way he designed things to be with the way things we think things should be. They made a golden calf because Moses wasn't around and they declared that the calf was the Lord. That's unmoored. That's a loss of the connection to God and his orientation and deciding we're going to do what we see our culture doing. This is the way they worship, so we're going to worship that way. That's a problem. And it was written for our example. Don't desire evil the way they did. How easy is it for us? You know, again, we may read through these examples. Like, these are examples for us. Boy, that's kind of hard for me to relate to. I don't know how many of you have even been remotely tempted recently to try to throw a bunch of gold earrings together and make a golden calf. <laughs> I'm guessing that probably not many. But we are tempted to indulge, aren't we? We are tempted to satisfy our desires. I I idolatry is around, it's the air we breathe. Uh, this next quote and this picture are just sobering. Um, John Calvin's famous theologian, he, he's famous for one of the many things, but one of the quotes he's most famous for is saying this, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. And I love this picture, not only because it's an aorta that's a smokestack, um, but because it shows a picture of our heart that's unmoored. It's a heart that's dislocated from where it is supposed to be. And that's what happens. 
the blackness, the belching. So let me get out of metaphor and let me get into reality. We don't have time to go through lots of examples, but I'll just give you three. And they're all oriented around the word right. Okay? Right. Few examples of the pervasive pantheon of idols that come out of our hearts. First, rights. I have a right to fill in the blank. Freedom. Expectations followed quickly by demand to do what we please with our resources, our time, our money, our lives. This one's a big one for me, guys, because honestly, my struggle with my time, I would say I'm a very generous person. But when my time is imposed upon in a way that I did not plan for, my family will be the first to, to, to attest, I lose it. I lose it. And let's just be honest. I mean, honestly, it's, it's embarrassing to share, but the most recent example is that I remember my dog. My dog is dying. Like, she's on her way out. It's probably gonna be a few more months. I don't know what it is, but she made a huge mess last week. Cost me an enormous amount of time and frustration. And I realized that idol in my life of having control over that area was got squeezed and what came out was ugly. I was angry. I was unpleasant. I was unpleasant to be around. This is not okay. This is not okay. We minimize these things, but it's not okay. There are many other examples I could share. But our rights, our rights to freedom, our right to comfort. We should be able to have our own way. Boy, isn't that our culture? It's the individualism, the rugged individualism of America. Have your own way. See everything in terms of and based on what is good for you. Consume what you will for your own benefit. Pursue your own dreams. How about right living? This one's, this one's interesting. We were talking about this as elders. Um, trying to control our lives by virtue of good behavior, good choices, good medicine, and or good faith. To avoid all pain and suffering, and thereby idolizing safety and security, and demanding that God give us a response that we expect. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa! Hello! Ouch! The hurts. As good Christian people, we try to have the right obedience, the right doctrines, and then we feel we deserve God give us a perfect life. That's an idol. That's the golden calf in modern day terms. What about rightness? And this is the last example. If I haven't pinged you already, this will, this will score them too. Our views or our values are correct and superior. Including the demand for respect. And even at times, justice. Oh, hold on. How is justice an idol? If you insist on it in your own terms. Three words. I don't, I don't know if I need to say anything more. Masks, guns, and pronouns. Guys, it's not okay for us to insist on our positions and insist that this is the right way and because I see it rightly, everyone else is an idiot. If we do that, we are walking in the example of the Israelites of old. We are walking in the example of desiring 
things that we want, things that could be good in and of themselves, but are not because they become ultimate. Here's a really, really good hint for us. As soon as you're pressed, like I gave the example when my dog threw a fit last week, when I was pressed, the idol was identified. When do you get angry? When do you recognize? Those are opportunities like, oh, oh, what's going on there? And just evaluate. We're going to come back to how do we deal with this? How do we deal with it? Because the point is right now I want to paint the picture, and it's a stark one, that idolatry is everywhere. And we need to recognize it. It starts with recognizing it. In fact, that's what Paul moves on to in particular. We, it's so easy to see these idols that are everywhere. So, continuing on in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let anyone thinks, who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed. Pay attention. Verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Here is his answer. He begins in earnest, the answer to the now concerning food offered to idols, which seems so archaic to us. Here's his answer to our challenges in our modern day times. The things that we can want that become ultimate, they're, they're good things. They can be good things. It's not wrong to want comfort. It's not wrong to want justice. But when we make that the end and the be-all, and it defines us, that's an idol. So what does Paul say? Take heed. No temptation is unique to you. It's common. God is faithful. He provides ways out. So flee. That's what it says. That's what the scripture says. I think part of taking heed for us, that's... Again, biblical language. Consider. Judge for yourselves. He uses these other words in here. Take heed. What is your frame of reference? Like I said, if it's making you angry, what is it that's making you angry? I wish I had been quicker to ask myself that question when Nala was having her problems last week. Because I wasn't. I was just focused on, I deserve this. I don't deserve this. I deserve to have my time not interrupted. I have so many other things to do. Lord, don't you see that I'm supposed to be helping to lead this church in addition to doing my job? And pay? I mean, honestly, God, am I the only one that thinks that way? <laughs> Take heed means what is my, well, my frame of reference was completely on myself. Red flag, red alarm, oops. Idle factory, spouting more, belching more, oof. If our own knowledge, our own experience, our own culture, our own history is driving what we determine to be right and good and what we pursue, then we are on very, very, very shaky ground. Good is not based on what we assess it to be. It's based on what God assesses it to be. So, flee idolatry, he says. Find the way out. How? How do we do this? Well, the passage goes on, and I'm going to skip through some of the scriptures here so we don't have the time to get into them as well. But I will just say... In this extended treatment of food offered to idols, Paul provides principles that we can leverage in the fight against idolatry. And they're based on, there's really three different contexts of eating food offered to idols. So again, I'm going to swing through this whole passage, 8, 9, 10. Please read it on your own. I would highly commend it. It's worth it. 
Actually, this is the point I wanted. It's not my notes. When we read scripture and it doesn't make sense to you, dig in a little deeper. Because I had the obligation to prepare this message and to come speak. And the first thought I had was food offered to idols is just not relevant. But why is it here? Why is it in scripture? And this is where I think God intends for us is like, well, what are the principles that we can draw? Do you see what I'm saying? So I just want to encourage you in your own reading of the Bible, because it's so important that we do that. If it doesn't make sense to you, lean in, pray, ask others for help. Principles we can leverage from this. Number one, there's three contexts of eating food offered to idols. Eating in a pagan temple. Paul talks about it in chapter 8, chapter 9, in this passage, verses 18 through 22 in chapter 10. I won't read them. But he talks about eating in a pagan temple and essentially is participatory. Actually, I did. I think I put the next one. Olu has the, just so I want, the reason I put the verse on the next one. Oh, sorry, back. Uh, yeah, back one. Oh, no, I took it out. Uh, I, can't, I must have taken it out. That's fine. Sorry about that. Um, the reason I wanted to flash the scriptures up, because I don't have time to read them, is he talks about um, eating in a temple as participation. And this is a big flag. Like, participation we can relate to. Eating food offered to idols in a temple we can't relate to. But his point is, in what way are you participating? With who's around you? Listen, if you wear the jersey, you're on the team. What does that look like for you? I, honestly, I really struggled to illustrate this. And the reason I did is because there's so many caveats and concerns and I want to be careful not to lay out what scripture does not lay out, which is detailed guidance for how to avoid every little, it's a principle. Because there's, there's a balance between, you know, hey, well, hey, Jesus hung out with gluttons and tax collectors and he was accused of that. Was he idolatrous? Clearly no, we know this. But when I went to parties in college under the ruse of I'm here to minister to people, I'm pretty sure that that wasn't the takeaway impact. So I think just being honest with ourselves about what does the participation in this look like? That's principle number one. Principle number two, eating from the market. This was, Paul was specifying that the food in of itself is not inherently evil. That's a helpful principle. Is something inherently evil or not? That changes how we, would we approach it. So again, another principle we can draw from it. Then thirdly and lastly, and I'll spend um, the last bit of time on this, eating in someone's home. He talks about this in, in uh, verses 27 through 30. This speaks to personal relationship. And it also speaks to a principle that I have called subjugation. And what I mean by that is we lower our own interests and desires and needs in favor of someone else's. Now that is a big one, and that's a big one for this passage in particular. He was saying, essentially, if you go into someone's home, if, you, if you're in the market and you buy, don't even, it doesn't matter where the meat came from, buy the meat, it's meat, help yourself. But if you're in someone's home and they offer you food, glorious ribeye, I don't know. And, and, and they say, this was offered in the temple of Diana or Dagon or whatever, I don't. Because they told you that, don't eat it. Subjugate your right, remember that right, your right, to eat that. 
in favor of preserving their heart, preserving their conscience, not offending. We'll get to that. The last verse in the chapter talks about giving no offense. It's a subjugation of our rights and our desires. There's a whole chapter on not, chapter 9. I'm not going to steal too much of Jimmy's thunder, but Jimmy's going to preach on this. And it's embedded in this very topic. So we're going to hear all about rights, entitlement, and freedom. How do we deal with that? How do we subjugate ourselves uh, in favor of others' interests, putting them first? For now, I'll just say this. Subjecting our legitimate good desires, our freedoms, even our rights to a greater good is exactly what Jesus did. And that's what we're called to do here. That's the principle. It is serving others that is unequivocally prioritized over expressing our personal freedom. That is such a contrast to our day and age, is it not? You can pry my cold, dead fingers off this gun. That's our attitude, isn't it? Or it can be, or the vice versa. Nobody should have guns. We cling to that right and we don't put others' interests first. This is the principle that's at work here. So it's participation, it's is it inherently evil, and do we have an opportunity to sub subject ourselves, to subjugate our desires in favor of someone else's, for someone else's interests. These are the principles at play. Let no one seek his own good, verse 24, but the good of his neighbor. That makes it explicit, doesn't it? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul refers back to it in chapter 9. Jimmy will touch on it. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all in order that I might win some. Then we come to the more well-known verse in chapter 10, which is this one. Verse 31. Do all to the glory of God and for the benefit of others. That's what it says. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We started with this question, what do you want? This passage puts in stark relief for us, what did Paul want? Because Paul wanted something. Obviously, he wanted to care for this church, and I love how he did it. Beloved, flee from idolatry. Feel the warmth in that again. I know we touched on that early on in chapter 3. But he again is expressing his fatherly care for these people. But he also is, in no uncertain terms, highlighting what he is doing and asking them to do the same. And that is this. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. We've talked a lot as a church about wanting to be a welcoming place. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor makes for a welcoming place. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's, it's interesting that this, um, uh, I think on the next one, Olu, it kinda, I tried to try to show, there's a sandwich here, but the, the, the famous verse about do all the glory of God. Look, I, yes, yes, do all the glory of God. But it's interesting that that is embedded in this, seek the good of your neighbor, give no offense to Jews, Greeks, or the church. It's embedded in the good of others. In fact, it's inseparable. To live in such a way that we bring God glory means that we will be working for the good of others. This is what Paul wanted. 
In fact, it absolutely dominated his life. And this is where we want to be. This is where, this is the polar, polar opposite of the Israelites having come out of Egypt, complaining about no meat, no bread, no water, no food, no gods we can see. What's the deal? It's the polar opposite. Paul points to himself, but then he also points to Christ. This is how Jesus lived for us. The same power that raised him from the dead is at work in our mortal bodies, Romans 8 tells us, to enable us to do exactly these things. So I want to draw this to a close by drawing our attention to this. The, the point of this message is not just to beat us up for being idol factory carriers. When I asked at the beginning, what do you want? It wasn't just to like, kind of, you know, bait and switch, like, oh, trying to make us feel guilty. No. Do you know that we were made to want? We were made to desire deeply. That's how God made us. He made us to want Him. So no wonder we need His very power directing our desire to what it's supposed to be on because nothing else is going to satisfy. Nobody wants to be that smoke-belching heart. But that's where we end up going. You know, this, this passage full of food, full of references to food, so I'll use a food illustration. If you pig out on sugary donuts all the time, how are you going to be hungry for what would really sustain you yeah. and what would really taste good yeah. and what would really be amazing? Yeah. I mean, it's a simple illustration, but I don't think it's an accident that this scripture in an extended passage draws our attention to food and drink because it's fundamental baseline desire. So I'll ask the same question I started with in a different way. Are you hungry? And for what? And for what? We were made to want, but we were made to want Him. We were made to want Him. And, and listen to this. Do you know what Jesus wanted? Us. He wanted us. For the joy set before him, Hebrews says, he endured the cross. In John 17, he says, Father, I desire. There's that language. Did you know Jesus said this? Listen. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. Subjugating his rights, his freedom. Philippians 2 laid it all aside that he could come and rescue us, that he could come and have his heart broken and his blood poured out and his body broken for us because he wanted us to be with him, to see his glory, 